This is Foothill Family Church with Mike Webb. Building strong, spirit-filled lives through God's Word. Let's start this morning in James chapter 1. Now, James is the pastor of the church of Jerusalem. He's Jesus' half-brother. They have the same mother, but not the same father. Joseph was James' father. God was Jesus' father. From a natural standpoint, I'm talking about. And church history tells us that uh, Jesus appeared to James not long after he was raised from the dead. And that started James on the path that led him to be the pastor of the church at Jerusalem, which he is by the time this takes place. We see that confirmed in the book of Acts as well, because in Acts chapter 15, it tells us about how there was a council that was held at Jerusalem so that they could come to an understanding of what is required of us as children of God. Paul was out in the Gentile regions starting churches, and many times, almost every time that we have record of in the, uh, in the book of Acts, but many times the Jews would come from Jerusalem and try to impose the keeping of the law of Moses upon the, those who had already been saved, saved by the sacrifice of Jesus. And so that became a real issue. So Peter, I'm sorry, Paul and um, some of his company go to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles and the elders that are there. And there's a real interesting verse in Acts chapter 15. I think it's about verse 29, somewhere like that. It says that everybody had their say. Peter had his say before the, the gathering of the apostles and the elders about how he was an apostle to the, to the Jews. Paul tells all the things that God has done in his life and ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. And then it says, and James answered. And so it, it leads us to the understanding that where everybody had an opportunity to say what they believed the will of God was in this situation, in this case, whether the Jews, uh, I'm sorry, whether the Gentiles who had been saved were required to keep the law of Moses or not and, and things related to that, James has the final word. That's quite a position of authority. So he has the final word, and of course he says that um, the blood of Jesus is sufficient, no keeping of the law of Moses, but they put a, little, a few little caveats in there that they would keep themselves from eating blood of animals and um, worshiping idols. And of course everybody was on board with that. That's not something anybody would want to do anyway. So when James is writing to the church, the first letter to the church, we know that we have a, a leading or a guiding or an unction from the Holy Ghost on the inside of us that tells us what's right and what's wrong. John wrote it this way in um, A.D. 95, 96, somewhere like that, many years, 50 years after the book of James was written. John wrote that you have an unction from the Holy One and you know all things. Well, people still struggle over that today. There's a lot of the church world that doesn't even bother to consider the reality of that or what it means or what it'll do for us. One of the great areas of misunderstanding is how to be led by the Spirit of God. And it seems to me that very few churches, modern day churches, even tell you that you can be. Percentage wise, 
I would guess that it's way less than 1% of the church that knows anything about being led by the Holy Ghost. Well, if you don't know anything about being led by the Holy Ghost, if you don't know that he will lead you and you don't know how he's going to lead you, then how are you going to be led? It winds up with a lot of hit and miss. More miss than hit, I think. So when James writes to the church, this is a very significant act or moving of the Holy Ghost. Now notice in chapter uh, 1, verse 1, James tells us who he's writing to. James, the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. James is the pastor of the church at Jerusalem, which is primarily a Jewish church. The vast majority of people that are in the Jewish church under James' pastoring are Jews that have found out about Jesus. But there's a lot of overlap a lot of unnecessary continuation of the keeping of the law of Moses that's involved in that. And every time the churches, the Gentile churches where Paul is and has started, the thing that creates a problem is Jews coming from Jerusalem to try to impose this law of Moses on them too. Now in Acts chapter 7, it tells us about Stephen stoning and Paul's agreement with that, his participation in that, holding the cloaks and the coats of those who do the stoning and killing of Stephen. Then in Acts chapter 8, it tells us in the beginning of the chapter that there was a great persecution against the churches in Jerusalem. Now, this is not worldwide. It's specifically a persecution by the religious elders, the Jewish elders, Jewish council, against the church at Jerusalem. And it tells us that many of the Jews scattered abroad. You'll find that the church did its most growing the biggest part of its growth and spread into the world in the book of Acts because of persecution. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying God uses persecution to scatter the church or to spread the church, but that's just the reality of how it worked. When there was persecution, people went to other places, other areas, other regions, other cities, but they maintained their Christianity, and so the Christianity spread. So this group in Acts chapter 8 that left because of the persecution in the church at Jerusalem, specifically in the church at Jerusalem, are the ones that James is writing to. Now, there's no formal documents. There's no Bible. There's nothing except the Old Testament scripts and um, scrolls that give anybody any information about God whatsoever. Church services or the function of the church has to be by the spontaneous move of the Holy Ghost. Has to be. There's no other option. Nowadays, you've got churches that say, well, we stick with the Bible, and they think that justifies them to put away the moving of the Holy Ghost or what the Bible says about how the Holy Ghost moves or whatever. Well, that wasn't an option back then. And so what will James, inspired by the Holy Ghost, to be the first writer to the church, it's spread and scattered abroad. What's going to be the first thing that James is prompted by the Holy Ghost to talk about? Trouble. Trouble. He knows the people that are going to hear of these things that he's writing, this letter that's going to be scattered abroad too and go to the places where the, the Christians fled to and so forth. He knows that this word is going to get around, but he knows their experience already. He knows they've experienced trouble and that's why they left Jerusalem. So his first comment, his first message 
We could even say the Holy Ghost's first message to the church is what to do in trouble. What do we do? Verse 2, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. I have to think from a natural standpoint that the Jews that hear this, the Christians that hear this, Christian Jews that hear this message taught in whatever place, whatever locality, whatever gathering they find themselves in, I'm thinking that their first thought is that James has lost his mind. Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. The word temptation is test, trial, or affliction. And James says, count that like it's joyful. Are you kidding? We lost our home? And we're supposed to count this as joyful? Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. How many of you look forward to trouble? No? How come? It's a joyful experience. No, it's not. It's to be counted as it's joy. Now, anytime you have to count something as joy, that means something very specific. And that means it's not already. If you have to count it as joy, if you have to make yourself be joyful or find joy in it, that it indicates it's a change of attitude or a change of thinking than what's common and normal for us. So the first thing, first words out of the Holy Ghost's mouth to the church, the New Testament church, change your attitude about trouble. Change the way you look at trouble. Don't allow trouble to make you feel a certain way. I wonder what the Holy Ghost message to us is. God never changes. Change your attitude about trouble. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, test trials, or afflictions, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Something the Holy Ghost tells us right off the bat is that trouble doesn't last. For those who change their attitude about trouble. Now, there's not one word in the Bible that, say, that tells us that trouble won't last to those who don't change their attitude about trouble. So it's up to you. Trouble's going to come whether you want it or not. Trouble's going to come because we've got an enemy in this world who stirs up persecution, did in their day, will in our day, maybe to varying degrees in different ways. But we've got an enemy that's going to stir up trouble and bring affliction or hard times to us. Your choice. It's coming anyway. Your choice on the attitude you take to it. If you change your attitude to make your attitude one of joy, then trouble won't last. If you don't, it probably will. It probably will last. So he says, count it all joy when you fall into trouble. Knowing this, please notice that knowledge has a lot to do with trouble. Knowing this, Knowledge has a lot to do with what you change your attitude to trouble, about trouble, toward. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. That perfect and entire wanting nothing has to mean escape from trouble. It has to. Otherwise, it's not relevant. 
knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But if you let patience have its perfect work, you'll come out of trouble, lacking nothing. So if the trouble you're under is financial, patience will bring, the trying of your faith, which worketh patience, will bring you to the place where you don't have any more financial trouble. If you're being attacked with sickness and disease, then changing your attitude toward trouble and letting patience have its perfect work will bring you to the place where you walk in healing and health. Perfect, in, perfect and entire, wanting nothing. But it all depends on your attitude toward trouble. Everything hinges on that. Join Mike Webb and Foothill Family Church every Sunday night at 6 p.m. for our weekly healing school. Healing school is for those who are in need of being healed from sickness in their body, as well as those who want to strengthen their faith in the area of healing. Jesus said the kingdom of God is as a man speaking the word of God into his heart. You exercising your authority in the name of Jesus by whom you have access into the kingdom of heaven to say that for you, you are free from the influence of sickness and disease. Foothill Family Church is in Orange County at the corner of Bake Parkway and Lake Forest Drive, just minutes off the 5 Freeway. To learn more about how you and your family can connect with Foothill Family Church, simply log on to mikeweb.tv. Foothill Family Church, building strong, spirit-filled lives through God's Word. Now James starts talking about wisdom. He says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, which giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. Why is he talking about wisdom? If he's changed topics, then don't you think he should have wrapped up the first one a little better? Don't you think he should have said, now, all right, that's an important point that we made about trouble and affliction and tribulation and so forth. But now let's move on to other things. But he doesn't. He says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. He's got to be talking about wisdom about what to do in trouble. Has to be. So he says, if you need wisdom, if you're missing wisdom to know what to do in the middle of your trouble so that you can count it joy, so that you can let your faith, the trying of your faith work patience, so that you can let patience have its perfect work. If you need wisdom about that, God will give it to you. He'll show you. But there's a caveat here. There's a condition. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavers is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. In other words, he's saying the surefire way, the absolute certain way to go under rather than to go over is to waver. Well, what does that tell us? That tells us our attitude toward trouble has got to be a solid, stable, constant, always position. Without that solid, stable, constant, always position, trouble won't leave and you won't have victory over it. Your choice, your call, but that's how it works. He that wavers is like a, waver, uh, like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. Let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. So you've got to be solid, unwavering, steady and constant in your asking for faith, I'm sorry, asking for wisdom to know what to do in your situation, 
You've got to be steadfast, solid, constant, always in your position concerning God's deliverance of the trouble or from the trouble in order for it to work. Because he says, James says by the Holy Ghost, the man that wavers can't ever expect to receive anything from God. Now, folks, I'm going to throw something at you here, and you decide for yourself how you see it. But this is the way I see it. It looks to me that based on that, 90% of the church isn't going to get anything from God. Now, my number's just a guess. But I can't imagine that I'm high. If anything, I'm guessing I'm low. It may be 95% of the church that doesn't get anything from God. It may be 98% or 99% of the church that doesn't get anything from God. Because outside of people that I know and have fellowship with and want to continue to have fellowship with, I don't see a whole lot of people that are solid and steady and stable. I look at the church world, especially in America. I look at the church world in America, and nobody knows why anything is happening. Nobody seems to understand how common events or current events in society that are going on around us, how that relates to the Bible. I see the church taking a lot of positions, trying to use the Bible or trying to use Christianity to excuse it or look the other way. But I don't see a whole lot of the church is solid and steady. Every time there's a hurricane, once they get over the political purposes that the left tries to use concerning global warming, then the church pipes up and says, well, why did this happen? Well, you silly fool, because you live on the earth. That's why it happened. There aren't any hurricanes in heaven, which means it's not God's will for there to be hurricanes. Anything that's not in heaven means it's not God's will for it to be there, which means if it's happening here, it's not God that's behind it. Now, how much more simple do the things of God get than that? But how much of the church world accepts that to be true? I'll let you guess and create your own number. My number looks really small. So he says, let not, not that man, the man that wavers, think that he shall receive anything from, of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. A man that's not constant, a man that's not steady, a man that's not always, when it comes to the word and comes to the things that God says, that man is unstable in everything. And that describes the modern-day church, in my opinion the vast majority of it. Now, Jesus said some things about tribulation. He said in John chapter 16 and verse 33, he said, in this world, you're going to have tribulation, test trials and afflictions. But be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. So he's got to be saying the same thing that James is saying by the Holy Ghost. He's got to be saying there's a way out of trouble. Let me even qualify that a little bit further. He's got to be saying that there is a victorious way to overcome trouble. Not just waiting for something to end, but walking in victory through it. That's got to be true, doesn't it? The Psalm says, Psalm 34, David wrote a Psalm inspired by the Holy Ghost, and he said, many are the afflictions of the righteous, and the Lord delivers them out of some of them. Well, half. Now, the Lord delivers them from them all. So there's got to be a way for victory. There's got to be a means of success, no matter what trouble comes or how severe it is. 
There has to be a means of success if the Bible's true. Thank God it is. Peter wrote to the church, primarily the Jews, and he said, don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial that you're under. Now, he's probably talking about the persecution. He's probably talking about the Roman persecution against the church that increased and intensified through the years of the, of the first generation of the church. He's probably talking about that or has that in mind specifically when he talks about the fiery trials. He said, don't think that it's a strange thing that these things have come upon you. The devil works like this against everybody is basically his message. Well, that would certainly be true of the persecution like the early church experienced, but it would also be true in every area of trouble, test trials or afflictions that the enemy's behind. And he said, don't think it's strange. Isn't it interesting that the thing that the Holy Ghost inspired Peter to say about trouble pertains specifically to the way that we all are attacked when we are in times of trouble? What I mean by that is, well, let me just pose it as a question. How many of you have had the devil tell you that the trouble you're in is unique to you? Anybody not get that? Does the devil not tell that to anybody when they're in the middle of the trouble? It's common. That's what Peter's saying. He's saying it's common. Everything the devil is doing against you or trying to do against you or bringing against you or threatening to do against you, everything the devil does in his operations against the church is the way that he operates against everybody in the church. Which means if one person can escape trouble and gain victory over trouble, Everybody can. That's your choice. It has to do with your attitude toward trouble. But it's your choice. I get amused every time I hear somebody say, well, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask the Lord, why did he let this happen to me? And I just have to bite my tongue and think, you silly fool. You don't have to wait to get to heaven. Just ask me. I'll tell you. And it all comes down to the word. It all comes down to instability. It all comes down to being double-minded or being steadfast. Steadfast in our attitude toward trouble. Steadfast in our actions when we are in trouble. Steadfast in our confession concerning ourselves and trouble. Now turn back with me to, to Ephesians chapter 6. I know this doesn't appeal or apply, I should say. I know this doesn't apply to everybody because, of course, not everybody gets in trouble, right? <laughs> there are some of you that live such a life that there's never any trouble. There are some of you, I'm sure, that, that live in such a perfect manner that there's no opportunity for trouble to come against you whatsoever. It aggravates the stew out of me when I see preachers act that way. Acting like, well, I don't know why you're in the trouble you're in, because I never have trouble. Of course, nobody comes out and says that. They just present the picture that some people are above trouble, and nobody is. I think Paul lived a pretty good and pretty solid and pretty steadfast life, don't you? Well, if that was the key to not having trouble, Paul never got anywhere, because all he had was trouble. 
Now, in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul is writing to the church one of the later letters that he wrote. So it's probably somewhere around, we, th we think Paul died in 66 or 67 AD. So this is probably written sometime in the late 50s, early 60s, perhaps. It's a church, it's written to the church at Ephesus. It's a church that means a lot to Paul. He spent the, the biggest part of his, uh, well, he spent a longer time in Ephesus than he did in the other church. He had the greatest ministry results in Ephesus than anywhere he ever went. God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul. The Bible tells us in Acts 19 in Ephesus. It tells us that from Ephesus, the word of God was preached and spread into the whole world, what the Bible calls the whole world. That doesn't mean everywhere on the planet, but it means the known world at that time. And it all started and came from Ephesus. There was a greater missions outreach from Ephesus than any other place Paul went. There was a greater impact on the city in Ephesus than anywhere Paul went. So much so that the businessmen began complaining to the local authorities, the magistrates, how that Christianity was ruining their business. People wouldn't buy their stuff to offer to idols anymore. And so Paul had to leave Ephesus under threat of his life because of the riots that had been stirred up because Christians found out that Christianity was more powerful than idol worship. And then they started burning their stuff and not buying more stuff to offer to idols. And that created a problem for businessmen. So Paul, in writing to the church at Ephesus, said it in Ephesians chapter 6. Here's his closing remarks. The thing that he wants them to remember, if they don't remember anything else, if you didn't get anything else out of this letter that I wrote to you, remember this. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. You know, most people complain not about being weak in the Lord. They complain about weakness in themselves. And most people are trying to be strong in themselves when they come to the realization that strength, spiritual strength is necessary and will bring you out of trouble. They try to develop spiritual strength in and of themselves. And the Bible never says one word about you being strong in yourself. Never. It says be strong in the Lord. Smith Wigglesworth said this. I found it very interesting. He was a man that was greatly used of God. He had faith and boldness in operation like hardly anybody else I've ever heard of. There may be a couple that I've read about that was in his same class when it came to believing God and exercising authority, but not many. He said this. He said, when I feel strong, that's when I'm the weakest. Because that strength is based on a feeling. He said, but when I feel the weakest, that's when I'm strong. Because all I have to rely on is the Word of God. I like that. The reason I like that is because I don't usually feel strong. There's hope for me and whatever others among us that might not feel strong. Well, that's a change of attitude too then, isn't it? The Bible says, greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. The greater one lives in you. What is he doing in there? He's there to strengthen you. He's there to help you. Rely on the help of the Holy Ghost in everything that you do. Thanks for watching today. Come visit us at Foothill Family Church. 
This is Foothill Family Church with Mike Webb. Now, folks, the Bible says that we're to offer sacrifices of praise unto him, not just when things are going good. It says we're to offer the sacrifice of praise. Join us Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 6 p.m. or Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Visit us online at mikeweb.tv. Foothill Family Church, building strong, spirit-filled lives through God's Word.